one of the problem is maybe of, of getting in a congregation after you're converted and really not having much of an example put before you because most other people, uh, to most other people now that Christianity is just coming to service itself. Uh, the way that Barbara and I got started in personal work years back was when we was in Washington, D.C. And I had never done anything except just simply study and go to the classes and everything like that. We were both young. And from my standpoint, the leading of anybody was pretty well up to the preacher. And that, that was it. And everybody around me felt that way. And the preacher there started a personal work program where we actually went to class and, and we trained and we had public speaking and all. And we started a regular program and, the, and set up studies with uh, there we used visitors, uh, cards, the people that visited our services, and we would contact them and set up studies. And we were in, in this case, we were using some fem, fem strips that had been developed uh, to teach, teach the gospel and, and in about five lessons. And so the first time I went, I went with a man who was uh, new as I was at it, only he was older. And so he was taking the lead, and, and I went with him. And after I went with him through several studies, then I started doing it on my own, Barbara and I together. And the interesting thing with us is, I believe, I may be wrong, but I think it was the first person we studied with we baptized. That we just, on the fourth lesson, that the lady was baptized. And then the church there started to just grow by leaps and bounds, and all of it was through the personal work program. And it affected me in such a way, after getting so involved in everything, number one, it caused me to study more and in a different way, to think different, to have more confidence in myself. But we made the decision to, that I don't think we would have ever made otherwise, to leave there and go into the ministry on a full-time basis. And then we went back and we've had, uh, up until this last stint uh, here, these last years here, uh, that there has been very limited success so far outside of the various families in the church in reaching because of some very unique situations we've had there. But really that stands as the, the only bad situation we've had. That uh, The first time we was here that there were any number of people that was baptized through the personal work effort. And then uh, when we went to Georgia, we started a congregation from absolute nothing, and it grew to in the 40s in just a few years' time. And then we went to New Jersey, and the congregation there grew from about 35 or 40 to about 125 or 30 in just a few years' time. All of it was through personal work and, 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 and just simply studying with people in group, small group situations and one-on-one -on -one situations. And most of the people I know that have responded even in meetings uh, have been first reasoned and talked with in small one-on-one -on -one situations. I don't know of any Christian group anywhere that has really made an effort at personal evangelism and been unsuccessful. Uh, there, there may be somebody, but I really don't know of any group thing, uh, situation where people have made an effort and then been unsuccessful in the process. The, the groups that are stagnant tend to be those that simply do not have any kind of personal work program going. I will say one thing, that any group that just like in the, the times that I have been successful, one big difference is when I was doing it full time, and so I was leading the way and set an example there, and then others were involved in all too. Uh, it is extremely difficult when you're in a church where there is nobody working full time. If everybody is operating at a full time job, it really is 10 times over more difficult. There's, no, there's, there's simply no question about that. But suffice it to say that if we work together and all, we can do it. And the bottom line is, number one, we, we know what God feels about it. Uh, we know if, if we have any feeling at all for other people, we know that that is the best thing you can do for them. I mean, uh, even before we get to this afterlife situation, which it's really all about uh, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to this life, when you just look at all of the scarred lives, uh, the people that are, that are into drugs, the alcoholics, the, the wrecked marriages, the, the children out there that uh, seem to have nobody that cares for them, and if, if we're Christians, we know that, that Christ has the answer to all of that. And somewhere, uh, I think these people are looking for answers. Some way, we're not conveying answers to them. 
and and some way we're not reaching out and reaching the very the very people that we need to and I'd like to start with the very rudiment and we're going first we get into something that is difficult and easy at the same time uh, easy in the sense it's very easy to understand and maybe difficult in the sense of doing and yet I think this is the starting point of the the key ingredient to reaching other people turn to first Peter 3 1 through 4 and let's see uh, while you're turning there also do Philippians 2 14 through 16 first Peter 3 1 through 4 and Philippians 2 14 through 16 both the places marked, and we'll look at several places there in Philippians. Okay, uh, Barbara, read that in, uh, would you please, on First Peter 3, 1 through 4. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Okay, now the only part of that passage that, that I'm looking at for tonight is that uh, he's dealing here with wives who are married to husbands who are not Christians. And notice the statement there in the latter part of that verse, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And then he says, he tells them, of course, what type of, what real beauty is. Now, it, it is only the facts of the gospel and the understanding of those facts that prove the resurrection of Christ. But you have to get a person to sit down long enough and to be willing to be honest and in a right frame of mind to consider those facts and the important out of them and to be honest with them and to evaluate them before they can do him any good whatsoever. We can, we can walk around with all the facts we want to in our mind, but until we get this other person interested enough so that they're willing to examine them then there's not a whole lot we're going to do. Uh, and so here we see that, that our behavior has a whole lot to do with other people. And so that uh, we're, we're all made in the image of God. We're all very intelligent. And so this way of life, he's saying, is right. It works. And it's very attractive. And in any time you have a person, male or female, young or old, who honestly puts this way of life into practice, it is extremely attractive. Uh, that is the only way that Christ really is preached to the world. I mean, we can get up in the church building, and, and when somebody comes for a sermon, we've got, uh, you know, about 30 to 45 minutes or so for a presentation, and you talk on one particular doctrine or subject in that time. But the, it, it's impossible to fully present all that you would like to about Christ. And, and the preacher might get up there and talk about love and kindness and mercy, etc., but, but we all know that all of those qualities, you have to talk about it and get it in people's mind before it can come out. But all of those qualities are best seen and appreciated and proven when they're enacted in the life. Now, another thing before we look at this other passage to keep in mind on this. In fact, let's just flip over here to Philippians 2 and 14 through 16. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Uh, Jack, would you read that, please? Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and deprived generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Now look at that statement there. He said... Uh, do everything without complaining or arguing so that that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So he says this generation is depraved, it's, it's crooked, and that we are to stand out as blameless and pure. But then as a result of living blameless and pure lives in this crooked generation, look at what happens. He says... 
you shine like stars in the universe. Uh, well, when do we talk about how black our society is, but when are the stars the brightest? It, it's when it's dark. I honestly believe, you know, we talk about uh, how different our society is now than it was a generation ago, and it is different. Uh, I was brought up uh, with TV programs like uh, and Jack and Louise and, uh, and all, Ozzy and Harriet and Jack Benny and I Love Lucy and, and these very innocent, humorous-type programs. I, I never saw anything like, like is on there now. Uh, the movies that I went to see were just simply nothing like uh, anything that young people are watching today. Uh, the music was different. It may have been silly, but it wasn't vulgar uh, in, in what they were saying and all. And so it was, it was a different world. Uh, when I went to high school, the, the Bible was read every single morning over the intercom for the entire school. Uh, in elementary school, the Bible was read and there was a prayer and a pledge of allegiance. So it was a different world. And obviously there had to be a lot of decent people to make it that way. It's not that way now, but I, I really believe that a true Christian would stand out more in our society today than they would then. If you're a this type person that he's talking about, there's just about nobody where you're going to go that you're not going to stand out. I mean, uh, for most guys on the job, if you just simply don't use bad language, you stand out. I mean, that's one of the first things I pick up when I'm just around in a situation where there's just men around is that the men that, that don't use vulgarity are the exception to the rule. Uh, if you don't smoke, you stand out. If you don't drink, you uh, stand out. And man, uh, you know yourself, when you go to town uh, or, or deal with people, courtesy stands out like a sore thumb. I mean, there's, it's amazing how few people actually make an effort to really be courteous uh, to other individuals. Uh, and so he's saying that in this world, these people are caught up in that and they're imitating just what's put before them. But keep in mind, they're made in the image of God. And it's one thing for us to stand up in the church, church building and say, hey, this way of life is superior. Uh, this is the way to have a happy marriage and a happy home. This is the way to get along. Uh, this is the way to get the, the fulfillment out of life. God's way is not right just because he says so. He says so because it's right. Well, I think part of our problem as, as Christians, and I'm not talking individually or anything like that. I'm looking at Christendom as a whole, and I'm looking at us from the standpoint of going out here and involving ourselves in and doing something about this. I think too often there is too little difference between the Christian uh, and the person in the world. And they honestly can't see much difference. And I believe they honestly think in their mind, well, I'm as good as they are. If they go to heaven, I've got to go too. You know, I'm no, I'm no worse than, than they are. I think they honestly feel that in their mind. And so I think we need to project this kind of thing. And then he says, as you do that, you, you shine as stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. We've talked a lot about evidences, and we've noted that there is something that is not subject to scientific proof in the way that H2O is. Uh, for example, uh, I obviously think that picture is attractive over behind the couch that we have never plastered it all over the wall, uh, or the one with the deer in there. We, we honestly think that uh, is attractive. Uh, uh, if you look at my lot, you can tell I love trees. You know, they're all over the place. And I planted over a hundred. But how would I prove something like that is attractive? I can't, but you can do it. And, and then the action itself will speak. In other words, I found out that other people think that's attractive also. And so that, uh, that I can't prove it in the same of H2O, but I know that there's an aesthetic quality that reaches into me. I know that when I hear certain types of uh, maybe music or art or whatever, and so uh, that, that same thing can reach into, into other people. In the same vein, you can get out here and philosophize and argue all day long with these people that are living a, a lifestyle that's contrary to Christianity. And his argument might sound just as good as yours. I mean, they'll give every reason under the sun for, for living together outside of marriage or for practicing homosexuality or, or using bad language or whatever, whatever it is. They've got their reasons and all. But the way the whole thing is showed up is when, when these lives are simply lived in, right, in contrast right by and let people make their own decision. And I'm convinced that the people that are made in the image of God, which is all of us, that deep down in their own heart, that, they, that all of them will identify with something as being right, and a lot are going to be attracted to it. Now, this isn't going to 
prove the resurrection of Christ. But it does show that his philosophy of life is superior. It makes you curious. It's interesting, isn't it, that the only guy that ever left an empty tomb, uh, the, the, the universal religion, the man that we measure time by, the man that we celebrate his birthday all over the world and, and the day the tomb became empty all over the world, also has a philosophy of life that's more appealing than anything you've come in contact with. That has to be uh, somewhat interesting. So then he says, look at verse 16 now, as you hold out the word of life. And so it's, it's as we live this way that then we hold out the word of life to others and the, the information that, that would bring them into a relationship with Christ. Now, turn over here to Philippians, the... Uh, third chapter uh, let's see look at verse 17 17 through the end of that would you read that Louise please uh, to the end of that chapter okay. join with others and follow my example brothers and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, look at the statement there. He's talked about his own example, the, the attitude that he has about Christianity, what real maturity is. And then he says, follow my example. So, in other words, think of the Apostle Paul. Uh, think of the type of life that he lived. Uh, his attitude towards Christ. He says, follow my example. And, and, and note those who live according to the pattern that, that we gave you. In other words, take, take a look at other people that are living their lives according to the pattern that we gave you. And then he said, I've often told you before and say again, and with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about Christians there. And he says their, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is on earthly heavens, but our citizenship is heaven. And so these people, he's saying that is, that is on the one hand referring to themselves as Christians and representing Christ, but on the other hand they really are totally in the world. They don't recognize that their citizenship is entirely in heaven. They, all they think about is earthly hand, things. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. How... We are, we call ourselves Christians, that literally means Christ, in, we are followers of Christ, uh, that's Christ in us. How can we be an advertisement for Christ if we portray in our lives those things that Christ did not stand for? We're false advertisement. And so we, we would actually do good. Uh, the, the atheist isn't hurting the cause of Christ because nobody looks at the atheist out there as a, as a representative of Christ. But when I stand up and profess Christianity and then do those things outwardly and before others, uh, then I am a false advertiser, but yet they're looking at me. Hey, you know, look at him. Obviously, there's not much to Christianity. Sure hasn't done, sure hasn't done much for him. So he refers to these peoples as enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, I think that in our teaching and classes and Bible studies and all, that we get hung up so many times on various doctrines and, and on fuss and fight on about things that, that, you know, whichever way they are, it doesn't affect anybody's life. And I'm not saying those things are not important. I've studied those things more than most and believe they're very important. But I'm saying that from the standpoint of, of fussing and fighting on those things, and real, in reality, maybe within our classes, we ought to be spending more time talking about the actual kind of lives uh, that we ought to be living and, and, and getting these, thing out, these things out in the open and, and all that's involved in, in being a Christian. And, and all of us make it clear uh, to these people that are in the, walking in the world like that, that you, if you're going to live like that, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. The, he's better off without you. Uh, that's what... Uh, 
the letter in Revelation in speaking of the layout of sin said, I would that you were hot or cold, but lukewarm I'll spew out of my mouth. He's, he's literally better off. Now think of yourself. If you had a, a business that you're, and you're selling some merchandise and you've got 50 salesmen and you want to move this merchandise, you know, you really want to move it. And so you've got a couple of guys out here that are, are misrepresenting your merchandise. They are falsely representing it. Uh, it just simply doesn't work in the way. Well, do you, do you want them on the payroll so that you'll have 50, or would you be better off with 48? I'd say you wouldn't want them. I, and I'd say if you, was, if you was sending somebody out and out, uh, if you're the president, and you've got some ambassadors to go out and, and give your position to others, you don't want anybody out there misrepresenting you. Uh, you, you want, there's enough confusion. You want them to not create confusion, but you want them to get out and represent exactly what you think on, in that area. We all know how, if you want to see a mad politician, then let the news media misrepresent what he actually believes. They, they really get some kind of disturbed when they're taken out of context or something like that, and you and I would too. Well, in the same vein, God is dependent on us, and we are, we are living letters, the New Testament says. And so we are representing Christianity. And I think that what that means for us as Christians is that when we're buying some, something at the store, we're doing business down at the gas station, or we're, uh, we're over somebody in our work, or we're under somebody, working for somebody, or in our relationship with our wife and our children and all of this kind of thing publicly, we've got to remember we've got two things going. We've got you know our relationship and our experience but we are a representative of Christ. That uh, That's all. Uh, these people that won't come into church building, what you're really doing is taking the church to them. That's The church is the people. And and that if we're going to get them in the building, then they, they need to see that there's something attractive uh, in, inside, inside that building. And so his emphasis there is on the life. And I suggest to you that as a body of people, that we're never going to be as effective as we could be until we get our own lives more in tune. Now, we're not talking about moral perfection. And many times somebody will say, well, hey, nobody's perfect. We can pick out sin in everybody. That's true. But I think we all understand that when it comes to human beings, that you can be good in a relative sense. And that's the kind of sense that we're talking about. That uh, we recognize that when we say that this Christian is pure and blameless and good and honest and kind and courteous and decent, etc., that he's not perfect in one of those categories. But we're saying that, that in contrast to other people who have not been influenced by Christianity, he stands out like a light. Uh, and so that, I, that uh, you, you may not be as fast as light, but you can be fast in comparison with other people. And, and so in the same way, we may not be perfect, but as a result of pursuing this philosophy of life, that relative to those that are not, that we can stand, that we can actually stand out, and I believe that that most people out there, maybe all, really, nobody expects perfection. I think they understand Christianity well enough to know that we don't claim perfection or anything like that. That it means that we believe those qualities are right. We're headed in that direction, and the end result is there is some light there that uh, nobody expects it in a in a perfect sense. Uh, any comments on on those few passages that we discussed? And again, we're on this winning people to Christ. We're saying that the bottom line is something easy to understand, difficult to do, and it involves our own personal lives. Okay, uh, now the next thing, let's go back over here to Peter. Uh, we looked at uh, the leading of people by way of life. Let's look at 1 Peter 3 and verse uh, 15. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Um, everybody got it? Okay, First Peter 3 and verse 15. Uh, let's see. Uh, Joe, would you want to read that, please? Or Melinda, if she's got it there. I didn't know which, if she could get it. 15 through what? Uh, verse 15. No. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you 
to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, now, notice uh, the, after the emphasis there on the life and everything. In fact, you can look at verse 13 and said, uh, he talks about them being eager to do good. Then he says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Okay, that word Lord means master. So you set apart Jesus as master, that he's, he is literally the master in your life. In other words, that uh, you're not your own person. We, we live in a society that thinks that way, but you're not your own person. And so if you're a Christian, you have set apart Christ in your heart as your master. Okay, now, notice the next statement there. Always, always be prepared to give an answer. Now, this word answer, uh, somebody asked me last night when we was, the study I had at Mark's house on the word, uh, and I'm on the, I had a book on Christian apologetics. And you've all heard the word apologetics, Christian apologetics. It comes from this word answer. If you were reading that in the Greek, that is apologias. It's a Greek word. And, and that's where the word Christian apologetics comes from. It's this very exact word, the answer. It means to be able to give an oral defense. Okay? In other words, it means to be able to give it like when Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. That's exactly what he was using and saying there. So he says, set apart Christ as master in your, in your hearts. And then always be prepared. In other words, he's telling, notice now, this is not a passage addressed to ministers. It's addressed from an apostle to all Christians. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer, to make an oral defense. You be ready at all times to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect. Okay? He assumes there that first of all, if anybody's going to ask you of the hope that lies within you, I think there are several things that are obvious there. This person has already made it clear to those that he comes in contact with that he believes in Jesus, and he believes that he has eternal life as a result of Jesus, that he's going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to live forever. He's made, he's made that obvious. And uh, so as a result of living a life, and he's talked about this earlier in the chapter, as a result of living a life, that is very attractive, and as a result of making it very clear that you're confident of your resurrection and eternal life, then he assumes there's going to be people that ask you the reason. And so he says, then always be prepared to give an answer. It's interesting, he's not talking about going around knocking on doors of strangers. And he's talking about conducting yourself in such a way that people see Christ in you and they have become aware of this hope that you have of eternal life. And so then they ask you, you know, why? Where, what is the reason? How can you feel so strong and, and so convinced? And then he says, be ready to give an answer. Be ready to make a defense. I suggest to you from that that all Christians should develop the ability. And I don't, it's obviously, it's, it's not just there. That all Christians should develop the ability to give a reason for what they believe and their hope. And we want to think in terms of, you know, all of us having various talents and things of this nature, and it may be true, there's no question, that not everybody has the same abilities and whatnot as a public speaker or anything like it. But every last one of us communicate through talking. And if, uh, if we don't have any problem, I mean, some of these guys that say that they just can't talk, you know, I just can't talk or I can't explain, but you get them on something they're really interested in. Uh, like uh, if it's somebody that likes football, you know, the, we, the conversations we have are basketball or, or baseball. And man, they'll tell you every batting average and they'll sit and watch a game and they'll say that crazy so-and-so, he shouldn't have done that. He should have bunted or, or he shouldn't have tried to steal. And they, they're, they're, they're explaining every phase of the game. They know everything that's going on. They have no problem explaining the game of baseball to you. They can, there's 22 positions on a football team. You know, 11 on each side, all of them different positions. And, they, and a football fan, any one of them, uh, those that, that have problems passing in school, they can run down all 22 positions and tell you just like a chess. After every, everybody's job. And those football fans can watch that football game, and if, if there's a tackle that misses an assignment, they know it. Uh, you know, if whatever it is, they know all that's, that's going on. 
people that are into mechanics can just sit down and talk about engines and things like that and, and explain them in various ways. Uh, ladies have their various things that they like and they can talk about and have no problem explaining. What is the difference in talking about this and talking about those other things? You know, what is, I mean, when it comes to informa handling information, what is the, what is the <coughs> difference? Does it, does it take any more speech ability to talk about football, basketball, uh, mechanics, the latest gossip, uh, cooking, uh, decorating a house or anything? Does it take any more speech ability to talk about this than it does that? Does it take any more vocabulary? Does it take any more intellectual ability? It takes incentive. Uh, that's, that's right. That's, I, I agree with you, Joe. It, it takes the... Uh, this guy that knows all that about football, he didn't learn it overnight, did he? How, how long does a football game last, anyway, just watching one football game? About three hours, if you watch it on TV. About three hours. And, and so how many games has he watched? To, to get that proficient in football. Well, he's watched high school football Friday night. He watches a college game on Saturday, the pro game on Sunday, and he watches Monday night football game. That's your real avid fan now. And he's done this for years, and, and, and then he's played some himself. And so he's got, he knows every position. Let anybody miss an assignment, and, and, and he knows about it right there. So I'm saying that if that very guy that is the football fan and knows all that spent that much time learning the reasons behind the resurrection of Christ, uh, the evidences for it, that he could learn it. If he was willing to spend that much time that he could actually learn it. In fact, football is a pretty complicated game if you never, we just take it for granted because we've seen it, but you sit down sometimes with somebody that's, that don't know anything about football and try to get them to understand it in one game. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty complicated game to understand all that's going on. Same with baseball. You know, it's pretty complicated uh, uh, to understand everything that's going on at the same time. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, part of it may be, too, just a lack of confidence. And, and, like, when you're watching a ball game or something, from the time you, whatever age you are, when you start watching at 12 or something, you start voicing this with your dad or with your friends or something, so you get real comfortable with that, and you talk and all. But then if you, if you don't do that with Christianity, I think it's real awkward and you can have a lack of self-confidence in being able to yeah, I think, able uh, to do the that. Self-confidence, but one thing on confidence, I think, though, too, is that I believe knowledge builds, you know, confidence. That uh, uh, people talk about even speaking, you know, and the confidence to get up and speak. Uh, the number one ingredient is being, ingredient is being confident that you... Uh, as long as I have spoken, as many years, if somebody was to ask me right now to speak on a subject that I had not studied and said, I'm going to have an audience of 200 people and you're going to teach them about this thing and I don't know anything about it and I hadn't studied it, I'd be as nervous as a cat. You see, I'd be, I wouldn't be comfortable at all. I, I, I'm thinking, oh, well, what, am, what in the world am I, I going to do? You know, that, uh, but I'd feel very uncomfortable. And if I only had a little bit of time to study it, I'd be scared to death that it's going to ask me some question that I couldn't handle. The, the key ingredient is the study and the preparation so that you're just absolutely confident. And, and then I think what she said is, is definitely a part of it, that uh, there needs to be more talk in the homes and the church where people articulate this. Uh, I believe personally uh, that, that too much centers around the preacher in our services, that, uh, that he does too much of the, the actual talking. I think that, uh, that when you're forced to articulate something, you embed it in your mind. And so here Peter makes a statement to all Christians to, to sit apart Christ as master in your heart and then to be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks you of the hope that lies within you. And so that when it comes to the ability to handle the evidences, and keep in mind that the letters that you have here, like for example, 1 Corinthians, where you have Paul giving all these evidences about the resurrection, everybody there understands that. He's writing to the church at Corinth. You want to see what kind of people they were that was handling this and teaching others? Come over here to 1 Corinthians. I got that. 1 Corinthians uh, 1. I believe this is uh, correct. 
Now these are the people that Paul gives this real detailed evidential thing concerning the resurrection and, and expects them to counteract the false uh, uh, teaching that's going on there. Um, look at verse 26 in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Um, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. What he's actually saying there is when the gospel went into Corinth, these real influential, well-educated, noble people just simply weren't interested in it. And it was the, it was the rabble of society uh, who were looking for something better that was interested in it. And so they were the ones that recognized the wisdom of it and, and bought into it. Well, these people that were not the greatest people in the Corinthian society were the ones that were converted, and they were the ones that were going to turn Corinth upside down. Okay, now think about the 12 apostles, the first 12. Now, I know Paul was extremely well-educated, but all the educated people are in Jerusalem, and that's the scribes and the Pharisees. And he picks a bunch of pretty rough characters out of Galilee. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, if you go back and study what was involved in, in being a fisherman in that day, before they had all the gadgets we have now, you had to be a pretty strong, rugged individual. And that's a picture that's portrayed of them. Pretty, pretty strong, rugged individual. And so these guys had no formal education. It's even recognized in the Gospels, the fact that they had so little education. And yet... These are the very ones that Jesus picked to train and to go out into the world, the people that did not have the formal education. Well, notice uh, the, uh, look at verse, uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 1. Uh, let's read on down. Who are we up to anyway? Tammy, you want to read? All right. Uh, Read on down and then uh, uh, read a little bit and then Chuck pick up after she does and uh, read, read that, let's read that second chapter. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom but with the time to you and testimony about God. For I was off to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Christ God. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with the wise persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of the age, who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. A man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, now notice all that he's saying there in his own teaching. He says, I didn't come to you with eloquent or superior wisdom and proclaim to you the testimony. He said, I came with Jesus Christ and him crucified that, uh, that Paul was a very intelligent person. And he was very wise. He was very well read. But he said, that's not what I came to you with that I came to you with Christ and his, his, his crucifixion. Look at verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in wise, persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, what I was saying was backed up with the evidence that came from God. 
that unlike the great philosophers of that day that would argue and debate and reason about what was right or wrong, he just come in and told them what was right and the evidence was there to prove it. Well, in the same vein today, we're not like the, the various philosophers, whether it's the existential philosophers that are in our systems today, in the school system, or the Dr. Spock that is trying to prove his way is right to raise kids, or somebody else, that uh, sometimes people get disturbed at Christians when we just simply present the message as truth. And that's what Christ did. And it says he spoke as one with authority. But here's the difference. We are presenting a message not out of our own thinking. The message comes with the evidence behind it to prove it's right. And so the, the resurrection of Christ is going to stand not because of any sophistication on my part. It's going to stand because that I've got the eyewitness accounts of people that I can bring together to bear on it, and I can show the effect on their lives and their willingness to die for it. I've got a multitude of prophecies that were written hundreds of years in advance that I can show was fulfilled in this particular event. I've got those other evidences that we could bring in. And so this event will stand on the evidence that God has given us. And so that means that when you and I talk to this person, I don't care if he has a doctor's degree in chemistry or whatever, this message stands on the evidence that's here. And he'll stand on that evidence. And sometimes, I think a lot of times people who don't have a lot of education allow themselves to be wrongly intimidated by those who do. If a man has a doctor's degree in some area, all in the world that means is that he's a specialist in that particular area. Outside of that area, I'll use Joe. You don't mind if I use you for an example, do you? Uh, I've got more formal education than Joe. You know, I've spent a whole lot more days in school and college and, and everything like that. But if any one of you here had a car that wouldn't start, are you coming to me or to Joe? Joe. We're going to Joe. I don't know. Why. I'm an ignorant, ignoramus, and then so. And so. So the fact that I have studied a whole lot of the things that I have studied, uh, Bible, archaeology, uh, history, educational courses, etc., that hasn't caused me to learn one thing about a car. And so when it comes to cars, I am pretty ignorant. You know, I know what I've read in a few magazine articles and the experience I've had driving, and, and that's really it. And so Joe doesn't have a doctor's degree. But he, can, he, understand, he studied the car and he can fix it. Well, this guy with a, at Tennessee Tech who has a doctor's degree in engineering, more than likely he takes his car to a mechanic that maybe doesn't have any college because that mechanic knows more about the car than, than he does. So what I'm saying that anybody knows what they have studied. And there's no reason for any Christian to be intimidated by somebody because they're a lawyer, an engineer, or a doctor. If they're that, it just means they have studied that particular area. But as a Christian, you know something that that person doesn't know, and he can't figure out for himself. Notice what Paul is saying here. He said in verse 6, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age that are coming to nothing. We speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, his proof. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words... This information is not anything that even the Plato's and the Socrates and the Aristotle's figured out and understood. It's God's wisdom, and it's revealed by God, and the only people that know it are those that have got the information for God. It's, it's been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so nobody, this guy that is an MD or an engineer, if he is not in tune to this, he is not on his best day going to sit down and figure out how to save his soul. And he's not going to figure out anything about the resurrection of Christ or anything like that. He doesn't, doesn't have the information any more than, than he's going to go fix his car if he doesn't know anything about cars. So when the Christian goes, what I'm saying is that if you are studied in this, you have something that I, that other person doesn't know and he doesn't understand. And that we are to, to have the ability to be so studied and so versed in this that we can actually give an answer for the hope that's within us. In other words, we can tell this person why we believe that Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave and why we are so absolutely confident of that. And I believe anybody that, that cannot do that, I don't know how they can become a Christian in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that a new Christian can automatically 
that because he can't do it, he doesn't know enough to become a Christian because just like Steve and I was talking last night, you can come to an understanding that you understand and give in and obey yourself, but still have not have developed the ability to articulate all this to others. But you have the very fact that you understand it, you can learn it well enough to articulate to others if we're willing to invest that kind of time. It's just like uh, uh, what I'm doing tonight or tomorrow morning in teaching a lesson. Now, I'm, re I'm reading a book right now, a new book on evidences. I could read that book very quickly and get everything I need. On the, the, book, the new book I'm reading is uh, Why the Bible is Number One, and it contrasts the Bible with the other uh, books that claim inspiration. Well, before I can do that, I can't just read it one time. I'll have to read it slowly. I mark it up. I make notes. And then I'll have to go back and look over it and review it in my mind before I present it to somebody else. And so in the same vein, I'm saying that when it comes to this information, if you're going to present it to somebody else, it's not good enough just to hear the preacher talk so that you understand it or to just read the material so that you understand it. You have to actually put the time in it so that you can go ahead and articulate it and get that information out to others. And, and it's just a matter of repetition. It's a matter of a combination, I think, of repetition and thinking about it, uh, th those two things. But then what happens is when you go to talking about it and getting it out, what you're going to find is the talking about it puts it more in your memory than it ever was. And then, and, and then every time you talk about it, you're going to come, become more proficient and more proficient. And some of these basic fundamentals, you're just going to have it right on the tip of your tongue all the time. Sure. Now, I was just going to say this book that I've been reading this past week on power to become what you want to be. This guy has a real good point. Uh, he, he's talking about um, if things that you would like to do that's in keeping with God's will, he makes the point, you know, that you know that these things like, and he uses that teaching others is part of God's will. And he, he makes a big thing on prayer and the fact if we pray and believe that we can do those things. And then he, he uses um, imagination and, and goes through the Bible and draws on different passages to show that if we would, if we pray, believing that God will help us do these things, and then we use our imagination to set a goal of how we want to accomplish this and what we want to do, that we can do about what we want to do. And then he points out, you know, that he knows that there are limits there for certain people, but that most people can do a whole lot more than they ever thought. And he, he pointed out that we'll never reach that people that don't set goals and try to do these things, they're certainly not, that's for sure. He said that's one thing he did know for sure, that he couldn't promise for sure that there were always other people involved and all, but that he, he could promise one thing, if you didn't set a goal and you didn't try, you'd never never be able to speak or whatever your goal was. Yeah, and I think on this, another like thing, just course. like on teach and take, a, that just speaking as one that does it know that any time that I teach a class, just like one like, even one like tonight, where we're studying material that I'm familiar with and everything like that, I get down there in my office by myself for about three hours and, and think about the material, and I check the verses, and I may look for anything, and I, and I develop the organization and everything like that. And of course, you can see where I made a few notes and all here, but I'm saying that for every, for every hour up here, there's already been about three hours by myself thinking about it before I ever come up here. But then that don't count the, the time that you're reading all the time. Uh, tomorrow morning that, uh, that I've been preaching a multitude of years, but I don't just get up there and it rolls off my mind, uh, that I'll get up earlier than everybody else in the house and I'll spend several hours uh, thinking and getting my thoughts together. I already know what I'm going to speak on but then I'll have to go ahead and spend several hours and then the same thing Sunday night, and then you're just constantly reading. And I'm saying that's, that's true of anybody who's a speaker, that are all preachers and all, that I'm saying that they spend several hours uh, thinking about the material, gathering their thoughts and all, uh, before they get up there. All right, now, we're not all maybe public speakers, but what I'm saying is if the average person would put that same kind of effort, in other words, here you are going to meet uh, Billy Joe, 
and Billy Joe already likes you because you know you've been a decent person. You've uh, you've been you've had a good relationship with him and everything like that. And you know Billy Joe likes you, and you've got a good relationship with him and everything like that. And you'd love to uh, see Billy Joe become a Christian, but he, he's not going to come to the church building here, the preacher. And not only that, but in, in all honesty, if he happens to come to the church building and we want him to come, the preacher may be speaking on something that's not even relevant to Billy Joe. He may, he may be speaking on something that affects directly the, the congregation there, and Billy Joe's going to wonder what in the world he's even, even talking about, you know, on that occasion. So I'm saying that if when you go to be with Billy Joe and you're going to be with him that day, take several hours to actually think about uh, ways to get into this subject and how to approach it and how to talk about it. In other words, he to prepare for Billy Joe in the same way you'd prepare for that class. All right, now, notice what happens, though. You're not even like a, a preacher that's dealing with a lot of different subjects all the time. Like I preach, I do three different subjects every Sunday and another, different, another subject on Wednesday and, and others. You're we're talking about giving an answer for the hope that lies within you. We're not talking about the Christian having to become a specialist in every single solitary area. And, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that the, the guy that works at a full-time job is not going to become a specialist in every single solitary area and every doctrine of the Bible and be able to sit down with Revelation and every book, and that's not what he's asking of you. And I don't believe the, the average Christian here in Corinth could have sat down with all his books now. But what you can do is this one big event that your hope resides on, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, why you believe he's the Son of God, why you believe in his resurrection, uh, the understanding about salvation and all of that, that's what uh, every Christian ought to be able to nail down. And once you nail it down for Billy Joe, well, then when you're with Susie, it's the same information. And as a result of the experience you've had with Billy Joe, you're going to polish it up a little bit. So it's, you're, you're actually going to do a better job by the time you get to Susie over here. Joe? Uh, seems you need to be an opportunity grabber. You need to know to, right. to be able to recognize the opportunity. Because I've sat back a few times and thought to myself, I wish I'd have said something at that point, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so you. Now, I agree with you. And every time is not the right time. Right. Man, man. Uh, and how to hit the guy to, to, to reach in and find what his needs are, that they're not all the same. Right. And if you hit somebody with the wrong idea at a, at a wrong time, you'll run them back on down, the, you'll slide them back further than they were. Yeah. You know, but even though he may have other problems that, you know, specifically need the answer, there's one area where we're all the same is, and that is the, the, the big thing is this hope you've got within you of eternal life. In other words, he may be having problems out here in any number of areas, but the biggest problem he got, got his God is he's going to die. And, it, and he doesn't have an answer for that. That's the That's biggest. That's the one that bothered me the most. Right. Because I had a friend that was saved. In fact, he was a drummer in the band, and he kept bugging me about it, you know. And he was, of course, he was real irritated, but I, I, had, I didn't have any needs, see, because I was making good money at the time. I had no big problems, you know. But when he came up and got in my face and made it a point to say, Joe, you're going to hell, mm -hmm. and just looked at me, it made me think, you know. Mm -hmm. Then I realized, well, maybe we do have a need. And so that, you know, sparked me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is the one. I don't care whether he's the doctor out here, the millionaire, or what, that I don't care, and I don't really care what kind of a cool thing that we act for one another. We all do. We, we're, I think we all got a little bit of actor within us, and I don't care how cool that guy projects to you, whether he, the guy up here in the university, the, the general, the president, or whoever it is, he's not in love with the idea of dying, and he's thought about it. He sure has. And, and if, if, if there was uh, any hope, any real evidence and all, uh, I think most would be interested in it. And so that we're not saying all. We're saying a lot, you know, are, are interested in it. And we don't know until we get in here. And remember, Peter, he's talking about people that ask. That as a result of your life, your conversation, uh, it's going to provoke certain type questions. And when that question comes, we need to be ready with the answer. Now, let me tell you that uh, go over some of the, the most common questions that come from non-Christians, uh, I mean, talking about somebody that is not a Christian and just, con just considering the Bible itself. Uh, Lee was a good example the other night uh, when he was here. That uh, Remember Lee, the Ch Chinese, uh, that uh, we were sitting here, he brought up the subject of, of the presence of evil in the world, that uh, innocent children that die. Uh, this, this question of why did the innocent suffer 
Why is it that bad people sometimes seem so privileged and wealthy and all and very innocent people suffer? Uh, it's one thing for a homosexual to get AIDS because of his practice, but what about that little baby that's born with AIDS who never did anything wrong and it's going to suffer and die in a very, very horrible way? Well, the Bible addresses that. And so Christians, I think, need that is an area to be studied and, and thought on and and be able to handle that. So you can, at least you can say as well, this is the way the Bible addresses that. Let me give you some passages to read. A good example, Psalms 73. A good example is the book of Job. And, and you can recommend this for reading in that particular area. But I mean, that's one of the most common. Another is the existence of God. Are you sure that God exists? You can't see. Uh, and that the Bible addresses that. You say, well, this is what David said about it. And this is what Paul said. And, and that... Uh, there are atheists that have become Christians because of the, the following reasons and all. If, if the person has a degree of ed, uh, education into college, he may want to know something about evolution or whatnot. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to be a scholar in all those areas, but I'm saying those are some questions that come up depending on the person you're talking with. All right, here's where I think that Christians can really make use of good books. I just, uh, I don't believe there's any substitute for good books. Think of books just like even hearing a good sermon, only better. If you, you, if you hear a good sermon where the guy really presents some effective material and all, you've got it for that moment of time, and then you've lost it. You're only going to remember part of it. And you'd say, man, I'd love for somebody else to hear that. Well, all a book is is, is this guy has sat down and put this same sermon in print, only he's been much more meticulous, and he's researched his material, and he's given his references and everything like that. And so become aware of the good type books, like in the field of Christian evidences, uh, say this guy brings this question up on evolution, and, and, and you know, evolution's never been a problem for you, so you've never really studied it much. Well, there's a little bitty uh, simple booklet of about 75 pages, uh, The Other Side of Evolution, written by a Christian, that anybody can read in a very short period of time, and, and if you're aware of that and all, you can say, hey, you know, I've got such and such, you know. Or, John Clayton is a former atheist. It's now, now a Christian. Uh, I can put you on his mailing list. And he'll, he'll send you his, public, his bi-monthly publication and any literature you can get. It's absolutely free. So use him as a tool. Or if somebody has something, a question on the manuscripts or something, you can say, well, Josh McDowell has done a very good thing on that. If you're talking about the resurrection, I heard Chuck mention that he finished reading The Resurrection Factor. Well, say, hey, there's, there's a very good book out just on the resurrection. Would you, would you like that? And so become aware anytime you do read a good book, if it's good, uh, have, be ready to know how to refer it to others. There are some good books that I've ordered a number of so that I could give them to others when I was sure that they would actually read them. But I'm saying make use of, of good books. And another thing, so far as your own reading, you get good books read, not by being the best reader in the world, but by being persistent. Uh, it's just like anybody can walk, walk a million miles. It's just doing a certain amount every day, you know, being, being persistent with it. And when you become aware of good books, uh, set aside a time and actually read a certain amount of those type of books and, and be aware of them. All right, the same with reading the Bible. Three chapters a day will get you through the whole Bible in one year's time. That means every Christian in about uh, 15 or 20 minutes, that's slow, where you actually think about it and all, 15, 20 minutes a day can, can get through it in a, in a year's time. Uh, and and uh, then there's other books and all that go on, but I mean every Christian should be able to read the entire Bible through uh, once a year. And so the, this thing of being ready to give an answer, I'm saying I believe it takes more perspiration than it does any great amount of talent. That it's the, it's the willingness to invest the time to read, to think about what you've read, uh, to become aware of books and things like that, and to use them. And remember, we're a family, and use one another. That if somebody uh, knows a little more about a subject than you do, then use him. Say, hey, I've got so-and-so I'd like for you to talk about on, on that particular thing. But you, we can use one another, and that's what we do in the family. We all have different things we're good at. Uh, we, we do it in the world. We use mechanics, and we use carpenters, and we use engineers and everything. We can do it in the church, too. If somebody is, 
become aware of these people and, and use these people, whether it's their books or, or them in person. But anyway, with, with those two areas of the life and being ready to give an answer and all, there is just no way, I don't believe, that we can do that and then really make it a go that you're going to try and reach people and then not reach them. I just don't, I don't, I don't believe we could set out in that way. I do believe the difficulty is in being in congregations where it's not been done and then people become a part of it and it's like that, you know, that what is there is accepted as a norm when really it, it shouldn't be at all. Anybody with any other uh, comment? Um, I got one. When you're talking to somebody and the topic of religion comes up, a comment I've heard some is, uh, well, you can't talk religion or you can't talk politics, you know, or something but, like that. All right, first of all, let me ask you. They say that, they say that's right, they say that, religion and politics, but do people talk politics? All the time. All the time. They say that because every now and then there is an argument. And anytime you have people that have differences, there's going to be, a, there's going to be a, an argument. The, the, but notice here again on our passage when it says to present it, be ready to give an answer to those that with gentleness and meekness. And so in other words, that when we present the material, sometimes the Christians don't present it in the way that Peter said there. Uh, whether it, I think the hellfire and brimstone preacher is out of place. Uh, Joe was telling me about an experience that, that he had on the thing, but I think the, the, this getting up and shouting and hollering at people or talking down and all, I believe it's out, it's out of place, that he says to present it in, in gentleness and all. And, and I think that, uh, that the reason people have that attitude is that a lot of times religion has been presented maybe in a self-righteous or cocky-type attitude or by people that were real touchy and they got disturbed if you differed with them. And presented in a way that even if that thing guy says some real hard things about Christianity, still be very calm about the situation and just go ahead and present the, the factual things. But I think on the thing you said, Mark, that they, we sure talk about politics all, all the time. And politics is not any less complicated by a long shot. We talk about the economy all the time. I don't know anything more complicated than the economy. And, uh, that, and so with religion, you know, and then with religion, what we're really talking about is our relationship to the creator of the universe and the possibility of eternal life. So I don't know how you top it in importance in any area. What I believe personally is a lot of people that don't want to talk about religion, that I think most religious people cannot really give an answer for the things they believe, but yet they feel comfortable with it and they just soon not get into any discussion. I believe the more studied a person is, and the more confident they are, and the more their faith is grounded in evidence, the more they actually want to talk about it. Anybody else? Oh, um, like being discouraged when you talk to someone and you don't get a response from them, and you know some seeds don't grow up, pop up in 30 minutes. Right. Because I've talked to people 10, 12 years ago about it that I thought, well, that was, might have been a waste of time. And you know, quite a few of them, you know, surprised me. Yeah, you can't. Uh, Tammy was telling me this uh, uh, downstairs earlier that she went over here to see a young man that uh, I taught him in the fifth grade, taught him in the eighth grade, and, and he went through high school and all. And, he didn't look like your good prospect for a Christian, did he, Tammy? Nice young man. I like. He was one of my favorite kids. You know, he was uh, very humorous and all. But he was telling her that he's been saved. That he, you know, he's come to believe in Christ and he's changed his life and attitude and and everything like that. You know, and you don't. Uh, I've had that experience several times in this community of somebody. I may differ with some of the particulars uh, in their. Uh, in their uh, experience, but the essential ingredients uh, of repentance of sin and trust in Jesus and, you know, the change of life and all, that obviously seemed to be present. And so I felt tremendously good about that, even though, you know, some of the specifics I, I may have thought were, were a little off. But, right, you don't know when you're, when you're talking to somebody. You, you never know what's going to happen to change their, their life in some way. 
But that seed that's sown, though, the, the, the thought that, that you put, you know, the impression in this guy's brain or girl's brain, it stays in there. And, and I mean, go, go. one thing, too, that in talking about the life thing and, and, and with it as the church, I think, uh, just like I was listening to a man talk, uh, this was Jason Locke's dad when he spoke the other week uh, at, at College Side, that if we, we, if we don't watch it in the church, that we can actually create an atmosphere that somebody that's really having problems and all doesn't feel comfortable in, even though they may be interested. And I think that's something to keep in mind. And maybe too, we spend too much of our time when we talk about some of these people that are really wrong in drugs or, or their sexuality in their lives or marriages or whatever, that if we don't watch it, we can convey the idea that we don't like them as people or that we don't esteem them or look down. Uh, you probably already heard this. I've used it a number of times speaking, but I've seen it in a number of church bulletins, you know, because I guess other people like it too because they've copied it. But anyway, in a survey that got, was taken in Gallup Poe some years back, asking people the number one reason that if they visited a particular church, why they would go back the second time. And the choices were the, the sermon, uh, the preacher, the, the building, uh, the particular doctrinal beliefs of uh, that group, and there may have been one or two others there, but then the one other one was there was the warmth of the congregation, the people in the church. And it said every time that survey has been taken, that wins. That, that people go to a church because, generally because they've been invited. Uh, they don't just walk in. They've generally been invited by the members, and it has to be a member that they've respected or, or like, and therefore they feel comfortable coming in with them. But then the number one factor for their coming back, it said, was the warmth of the individuals there. Well, you put yourself in the position, uh, we all have backgrounds in the church, of going uh, to a church building with a lot of strange people and all, and I know with me that that would definitely be the number one. I was finally converted uh, in a church where that had that warmth, and I walked in some that I was invited to that I had no desire whatsoever to go back to. When I was in the Marine Corps, I visited some churches of the type that I was affiliated with uh, at Memphis. Had no desire whatsoever to go back. I wound up actually going to a group that I was not affiliated with before I went to the Marine Corps because they were a warm group of people. And they sent a bus out to the base and they picked us up and, and somebody invited us home afterwards and they had different activities and they just made you feel like you were, that you were number one on their list, that they were really happy you were there. The other place that, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't, it was anything but that. And so I think that, that in our own services, that having an atmosphere where people feel very comfortable, showing an interest, uh, sometimes I think that some of the things that we can do that are, that's not good if we don't watch it is, we all have our relationships, and like at college side, or like us over here in the big churches, immediately after service, generally, we get together right with people that we like and know and we start conversing. And it's very easy for a visitor just to be there by themselves and walk on out. And I think that the, if we're concerned about reaching people, before we settle down to converse with these people that are our friends and we enjoy talking with and everything, we need to really look over the audience good. And if there is a visitor there, to really get to that person, and I think more than just a little old casual welcome. Let them know that you're really glad they come, find out their name and, and, and everything, and let them know that you want them to come back and all. But that kind of thing is, is very important, I think, as to whether or not they, they come back again. Anybody else with anything? Okay.